Yellowstone animal lovers to another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, sponsored by the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana, where each week we are exploring a different facet of one of the largest nearly intact temperate zone ecosystems on Earth. Your hosts this week are myself, Eden Wandra, and Jess Smallwood. Today we are going to be talking to entomologist Marion Kirst about her work with Northern Rockies Research and Educational Services and their flagship program, the Montana Moth Project. Izzy Summerdorf from the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary will be joining us as well as a new student to entomology. So welcome Marion and Izzy. Hi! <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be here. Yes, good to be here. We're so happy to have you both. Um, can we start off with just a little intros? Marion, do you mind introducing yourself and what your current role is? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so I am the program developer and staff entomologist with Northern Rockies Research and Educational Services. And we are um, a small grassroots biological research nonprofit based out of Lolo, uh, Montana, near Missoula, uh, but I am specifically based in Billings in South Central Montana. And we uh, do a lot of on the ground research involving sort of some of the traditionally uh, uncharismatic, although we think they're super charismatic, <laughs> mm-hmm. animals of uh, Montana, including bats, birds, and invertebrates. And our flagship program is the Montana Moth Project. and. That is basically um, a statewide biodiversity survey looking at the abundance, um, the habitats, and the diversity of moth species in Montana. Montana is a historically undersampled state when it comes to invertebrates, so that is changing thanks to a lot of work coming out of Montana State with um, bees, native bees, um, and other hymenoptera. And then we have a tendency in Montana to focus on invertebrate research as it relates to our agricultural ecosystems, because that's such a huge driver of our state economics. And so we wanted to look at uh, moth diversity apart from those agricultural ecosystems. Um, We include those as well, but we have such a diversity of habitat in Montana. We wanted to kind of figure out what moth species are here, uh, why they're where they are, um, and if any of them might be uh, specific to certain habitats and what that might mean in terms of climate change and uh, native pollination networks and things like that. Oh, cool. Okay. Happy to, I'm happy to introduce Izzy too as <laughs> our, like, our, one of our key, probably our most key uh, volunteer, Moth Project volunteers. Oh, thank you for that. You know, I really just love getting out and seeing and learning about moss with you. And as Marion said, I volunteer with her for the project, but the main reason I'm involved with the podcast today is that I'm the animal care manager here at the sanctuary. Thank you guys so much. All right, so full disclosure, we know next to nothing about (laughs) moths. Eden knows a bit more than I do since she got to go out mothing with you guys, but if I'm completely honest, I know little more than that they exist, that there are big ones and there are little ones, and that my grandma kept mothballs in her trunks and closets and drawers and everything everywhere. So, and I never thought more about it since then until, of course, when we all met at the conference and I found myself absolutely starry-eyed and completely absorbed with everything Marion was saying about the Montana Moth Project and their incredible research. So for everyone listening, if you're like Eden and myself and can readily admit that this is a whole new world for you, but you are here to learn and gain some knowledge, then buckle up because it's going to get wild. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I had a very similar experience. I feel like moths are this mysterious animal that only comes out at night and are mostly viewed as, as pests by a lot of people. And so we don't take the time to, to get to know anything about them. And I didn't think much about them before I went out mothing with you all last summer. And it just, it just opened my eyes to the whole new world. I was so excited about them. All the cool little facts you all were sharing about them and their specific adaptations they had just... Um, blew my mind away and, and sparked my interest. So we're hoping we can do that for our audience today, even though they don't get to see a moth. We hope they, after hearing this, will want to actually go out and help you all and get to learn more about them. So that's that's kind of our goal with this podcast today. Okay, so we're going to start with a few questions. One's a funny one, the other's a serious one, and I'll let you figure out which one that is. So, Chris, question number one. Do mothballs actually work? <laughs> and serious question, but really, do they work? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so mothballs, uh, yeah, they work. Um, there's a reason they, they were used for quite a while, uh, but they are kind of... Uh, out of fashion now because there are some chemicals in them that are considered uh, carcinogenic these days. So oh, napoline wow. and then dichlorobenzene. And there are there are alternatives to mothballs, um, mostly the natural oils and floral, um, like dried floral uh, sachets and things like that. So mm -hmm. lavender, um, there's some like hardwoods that have some nice that smell really nice and can also repel certain um, destructive insects in your drawers and in your clothes. But when it comes to clothing moths, there's something I need you guys to know. Mm -hmm. And you guys are not alone in asking this or, or this being the one thing that you know about moths. Um, we gave a presentation to a bunch of area uh, fourth graders in Billings last Arbor Day. We had a, a moth project booth set up and I asked the classes, what they thought they knew about moths. And inevitably, the first thing, and often the only thing that they would say is that they moths eat clothes. That's what they know. It's so sad. So sad. <laughs> the, the moths that eat clothes, for one thing, the adults do not eat them. Only the larvae are eating the fibers. Um, they particularly like wool. So if you've got holes in your clothes and they're like 100% polyester or like rayon, then it's probably just a hole you got you know, because you were tromping through the raspberry patch or something like that. Not <laughs> the other thing is a lot of people think that clothing moths are Miller moths, are the ones that, that often get trapped in your house in the spring and fall um, in large numbers. And they, that is not um, the clothes moth. The clothes moth is a tiny micro moth that's no bigger than really like a, um, a rice grain. And again, it's the larvae, not the adults that are doing the, the eating. So, Yes, if you get Millers in your house, don't worry, they're not eating your clothes. And there's, I think maybe in Montana, we maybe have like two species, maybe one or two species of clothes eating moth. I mean, that's, and that's out of, you know, thousands of other moths that are not pestiferous and really wonderful. So yes, get that out of your head. Wow. <laughs> not let that be the first thing that comes to mind when you think about moths. Great. That's an important message to start we're, with. We're doing it. <laughs> wow. That's what we're here for. Well, I'm sure that's going to be a relief for a lot of people. Maybe not necessarily collectors and purveyors of antiquated clothing. Mm -hmm. You know, so if there are any Civil War reenactors in there, maybe, maybe hold on to your moth protection items. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so now back to the actual serious questions. We've already been using this term a lot lately, but can you describe what mothing means? Sure, yeah, so mothing is basically uh, either recreational, usually recreational, but also um, a research activity that involves setting up a uh, light lure of some kind at night uh, to bring in certain different types of moths. Um, and you usually do it at, uh, between dusk and dawn, sometime in there. Um, and you can use, there's a couple different types of light lures. There's uh, traditional ultraviolet black light lures. You can get different wattages of these bulbs. Um, and then you can use mercury vapor lights. And then these days uh, we're starting to shift away from mercury vapor to LED based uh, light lures. I haven't personally used those yet. They're pretty expensive right now, but yes. So there's different types of light lures and the way that they work is they're, they're basically manipulating the fact that mods see light at a certain wavelength or they respond better to a certain wavelength of light and they see a different range of in the UV spectrum than humans do. And so we can't just use like an incandescent, I mean, you can use an incandescent bulb if that's all you've got and you'll get, you'll certainly get some mods that come, but yeah, we use these other types of light because they emit uh, light at a, at a wavelength that they can, they really respond to and they can see. Um, and then you can either attach that light to your porch socket. A lot of recreational mothers will just screw like a regular um, black clay bulb into like a porch light. And then you can put some kind of, you want some kind of landing surface for the moths to alight to. So they'll put maybe like a mesh hamper or a pillowcase behind it or something like that. And the moths will be, will be attracted and they'll alight on that landing surface. And then you can see them um, either in the morning if you want to go to bed or you can stay up late and drink some wine or <laughs> beer and, you know, mm -hmm. see what comes. And it's super fun. So the idea is that you are kind of opening this door to a night world that most people, because we're diurnal creatures, simply don't. Not that they don't have access to it, but we just sort of are so set in our diurnal, you know, 12 hours in the day kind of period that, and it's so hard for us sometimes to force ourselves to stay up, um, you know, past 1030 to do something like this. It's amazing. A lot of people are totally content staying up past midnight to watch a TV show, mm -hmm. but the thought of sort of just going outside the front door and being involved in the night and the activity that's taking place then is really hard sometimes to get people to do that. But once you do, it just feels like a totally magical world that it's like you've gone through the, you know, the wardrobe to Narnia or something. And all these animals that you might never see otherwise, you have a chance to glimpse their existence. And they're so diverse. I think that's the other thing. People think they're just brown, you know, just a brown miller, quote unquote. Um, but really when you start to, and Izzy can attest to this, when you start to moth, you know, once, even just once a month throughout the season, you begin to see the patterns, the change in species makeup, the change in abundance, and the change in patterns and colors, which is very cool. So, sorry, that's a super long answer to what is mothing. <laughs> but basically, mothing is like, it's a recreational or, you know, professional activity in which you set up a light at night that attracts uh, moths to you, to where you are from the surrounding area. And you use it as a chance to investigate species, try to field ID, maybe even just a, just a family and see what's out there. 
Yeah, Marion really hit it on the head. When you take a look at these guys, the details that you will see are truly beautiful, even on tiny little micro moths. And when it comes to mothing, I always think if you would tack up a sign on your door that says gone fishing, you can do that gone mothing. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Definitely. I don't know who would be knocking at your door at like midnight. <laughs> 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 I'm gone I mean, Izzy's totally right. The if you are, have any interest in art or just the aesthetics of things in terms of pattern, architecture, geometry, color, mods are endlessly fascinating and uh, rewarding because it's like you go outside in this dark world and you think, okay, well, whatever I see out here is going to be, you know, dark and boring. And yet it's like a, it's all these different paintings, these different styles that present themselves to you. You know, you have your minimalist geometric patterning. You've got your, your sort of more abstract swirls of color. It's just really incredible. I love tiger moths are one of my favorites because they almost combine two art styles in a way. (laughs) You've got the four wings, which are very linear, uh, black and white sort of geometric crisscrossing lines or longitudinal lines. And then the underwings, which are aposematically colored. So warning coloration, bright orange fluorescent pink with these often with these beautiful kind of globular black spots along the hind wing edge reminds you of like a watercolor painting and so you've got these two really different aesthetic forms on this one creature and it's just what an incredible thing you just don't see that with you know, uh, gray wolves or, Mm -hmm. um, even with like eagles here in Montana, these are some of the most beautiful, um, just objectively beautiful animals that you'll see in our state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember that from when I went mothing with y'all, that was like one of the things that surprised me. I had this picture in my mind that moths were all just white or gray. And then you started showing me all the different ones and the diversity of, of color and patterns was equal to, to like what we see in butterflies during the day and what people think is is beautiful. It's actually happening on moths as well. Oh yes, and then that's an important point too, Eden, is the distinction between butterflies and moths. So one of the reasons that we are studying moths and looking at the diversity of moths is because they are so, compared to butterflies, they're incredibly under understudied mm-hmm. and researched in North America and particularly in Montana. Butterflies, meanwhile, so basically butterflies are just day flying moths in terms mm-hmm. of their evolutionary history. They're just sort of an offshoot of the moth family tree. Moths are, much, are older. They are the older group. Um, and in terms of diversity, Butterflies, so the butterflies and moths both belong to the order Lepidoptera, which means scale wing. Um, they're characterized by this, the scales on their wings. Um, and there are something like 160,000 uh, described species of moths and Lepidoptera and moths and butterflies together uh, worldwide. But 90% of those are moths. Only about 17,000 or so That's are crazy. butterflies. And so <sighs> moths are insanely diverse. and in the US, especially butterflies, because they're so charismatic, because they share our same schedule, daily schedule, uh, they are far more, or they, they've been researched way more, um, and we know so much more about them. Most of the species that are out there, we know about already. 
for butterflies. Moths, it's a totally different story. Well, that leads perfectly into our next question. So can you actually describe what the Northern Rockies Research and Educational Services do? And how big are you? Are you a nonprofit? Um, Talk about that research. Sure. So, um, and hopefully my colleague Matt can in a follow-up can talk to you guys more about um, how he started Northern Rockies. So Matt uh, Seidensticker, he's the executive director and founder of Northern Rockies Research. And we are a tiny uh, grassroots biological research nonprofit. So basically our general mission, we're dedicated to advancing scientific research, education, and conservation of insects, birds, and other wildlife in Montana. And our goal is to conduct original scientific research within the state and then build community-based collaborations to engage the public in citizen science. And that's a big part of what we do. We do a lot of outreach, um, but we also, particularly in Yellowstone County, the biggest county in Montana, we have two citizen science groups involved in in the Montana Moth Project. And so being able to develop and, and empower citizen scientists who want to participate in our research is really important to us. So Matt started Northern Rockies um, out of the MPG Ranch, which is a really interesting and important uh, conservation property that invites scientists and other researchers to come on their property and do conduct original research. Um, So Matt started there, but then when he and our collaborator Chuck Hart with Colorado State University, when they came up with the idea to study moth diversity in our state, Matt thought, okay, well, I need to get, you know, I've done a lot of um, insect monitoring work and pollinator network research in the Missoula and Bitterroot valleys. But I, we've, in order for this to really be far reaching and important, I want to get to the rest of the state. And because Montana, we're so lucky in that we have such a diversity of habitat, not just in terms of type of habitat, but also topography and elevation. You know, we have sand hills, we have tundra, we have mixed conifer forests, fens, bogs. We even have red high desert in the Prior Mountains. And so thinking about, you know, the diversity of invertebrates and specifically moths that could be out there, we needed to hit the rest of the state. And so in 2020, I came on and I'm based in the south central part of the state in Yellowstone County, we were able to then sort of begin sampling different parts of the state. And our ultimate goal is to sample, to establish at least one sampling site in each of Montana's 56 counties. And after this field season, we are super proud to say that we are at, I believe, 41 counties of 56 counties. And oh, that's wow. basically just in two years. Woo. Of sampling, that's very impressive. So cool. yeah, <laughs> Go awesome. get it, guys. Yeah. And most of that, I would say, is due, is due to my, uh, my colleague, Matt, who, you know, is, he's just amazing. He will take, you know, a week, um, trip at a time. And then he takes multiple trips like that in the summer where he travels the state state and, and, um, you know, does his research in terms of trying to figure out what, what public, uh, uh, what would you say public lands he has access to and which have habitats we're specifically targeting and is able to go and hit those. And it's really been amazing. And then our colleague, Chuck Harp, um, He's basically our macro moth specialist. He is the one that we send all of our specimens to down at Colorado State University. So we partner with the Gillette Arthropod Museum 
of arthropod diversity, um, which is a museum that's part of Colorado State University. They're the ones that house our specimens, curate and house our specimens. Um, and we buy them the cabinets and the pins and all that to create the collection. And then Chuck, he is just incredible. He's started out as an amateur mother way back when, and he's got now like 40 years of experience with collecting and curating. So spreading and pinning mods. And <laughs> this year alone, Chuck has spread, I think he's pinned and spread something like 20,000 oh my God. Um, specimens. It's amazing. And we now have the largest holdings of Montana mods of any collection in the world, which is very Whoa. cool. So the Montana Moth Project Collection <laughs> and at CSU is very important. It's open to anyone who would, is interested um, in what we're finding and you know, it's a, it's an open access collection. We're developing a database, a digital database. Mm-hmm. All of our records are being entered into a digital arthropod network. The photographs, there's photographs to go along with um, almost all of the specimens, which is fantastic. And that's thanks to a huge group of volunteers down at CSU that Chuck has organized to help us with that effort. Wow, that's really incredible. Do other other states have such a robust moth project? No, as far as we know, not yet. Um, we there definitely are some long term uh, moth diversity projects in other states. The I think it's a Block Island Moth Survey or something like that. Um, they've been back east. They've been looking at moths for a few years, but in terms of overall coverage of of a state i don't think any project really can compete with what we are doing but we hope that they will that's part of that's part of our goal is is that people will see the results of this project and that includes hundreds of county records scores of state records at least five new species Um, and we hope that people will see that and say you know this is something that we could do in our state which is likewise under sampled and under surveyed so idaho uh, wyoming north dakota south dakota these states that in the western part you know where the central western where you've got sort of the plains meeting the mountains there's some really interesting habitat divergences that happen some ecological um, mixing zones that make for fantastic mothing and really interesting invertebrates and so yeah we would love to see some of our neighboring states take this project on that's you know maybe down the road a bit we still have uh maybe two years of diversity sampling before we can sort of say that we feel like we've really covered what we want to cover because it's not just location when you think about the way that these animals operate you know the way any animal operates really if you just look at a site one site in a county in say the month of may that's such a small picture of what's actually going on so you Mm -hmm. really then you need to get another site in a different habitat in that same county but then also in june because there's a totally different set of moths potentially flying in june or in july than in may or and then you have to make sure you hit the end of the season there's certain moths that are only active in the spring and then there's certain moths that are only active midsummer, and then again certain moths that are only active in the fall sometimes there's ones that are spring active and they disappear in the summer and they are active again in the fall hmm. and so you know temporal diversity is another thing you have to consider and then also topographic diversity so making sure that we're we're not just sampling at 3,200 feet, you know, on the on the floodplain. That we're also getting up to 10,000 feet, um, 11,000 feet to the 
the plateau, uh, the Beartooth Plateau, for example, to see what's up there. Wow. So yeah, it's a big, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge effort. Um, but we, because we're such a small nonprofit, we are not tied to a university um, in terms of our funding, in terms of our, um, the way we operate. We partner with Colorado State, but we don't get any money from them. Um, and we're not tied to a, a state or federal agency that provides us the flexibility to basically like say, hey, okay, I've got a week free, you know, at the beginning of June, we know that this species might be out or this group of months that we're trying to target might be out um, in this type of habitat. We can pick up and go. We don't have, there's so little red tape, you know, or paperwork or anything that we have to go through other than, you know, required permitting from certain agencies like the BLM and that kind of thing. Um, it makes us really flexible. And I think that's why we've been able to achieve the coverage we have. We couldn't do that if we were a much larger organization. That said, the flip side is we never have any money. <laughs> and, um, are often out of pocket on a lot of things. We, um, you know, there's only two of us and we're kind of both doing the jobs of like 10 people. Um, and so we would love to have, you know, we're hoping that our work and our result, results um, so far will attract some larger funders who would be willing to invest in us more long term. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the flip side, of, like I said, is that we are pretty flexible. We're scrappy. Right. We're little and scrappy. Yeah, <laughs> no, that makes things easier sometimes. <laughs> well, and I so, think after the description of the different colors, maybe we could go to like, hey, Project Runway, <laughs> you want to sponsor us. <laughs> No. You can make a challenge out of it. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Yeah. I know the Project Runway did do like an insect inspired episode. Oh. And I often have, I mean, really, like, they are the most perfect inspiration for architecture and fashion. <laughs> Boom. And interior design. Let's do it all. Okay, so so to, to summarize a little bit, it sounds like your general research is trying to document diversity and abundance of moss over time and then look at how factors such as habitat and time of year and elevation are are affecting those things. So why why are you doing this? Why why is it important? Why should people fund it? Totally. I mean, that's a that's a legit question, right? Because moths are often, um, unlike bees, which are really hot right now, um, moths are often considered just an agricultural pest. And that's, you know, that's true of certain groups and certain species, but the vast majority of moth species are harmless in terms of their economic uh, damage that they might do. And we're beginning to realize that what damage a lot of these um, species might do as caterpillars is potentially offset by the benefits they provide as pollinating adults, right? And so one of the things that's because the country as a whole, well, the world as a whole, is beginning to focus on pollinating invertebrates and their importance to our natural ecosystems, um, our crops, native plants, all of these things. Moths now have an opportunity to get the attention that they deserve because so many of them are pollinators. They're doing this work under the cover of darkness, a lot of them. Although don't, don't be mistaken, there are lots of day flying moths that are also important pollinators. But yes, studies coming out of Europe, um, there was one recently that came out showing that this particular moth, Noctua pranuba, that is considered a non-native in the US, but back there it's native. And they did a study looking at its pollination 
Houston services for red clover on crops of red clover. And they found that it's responsible for a third of the pollination of that plant, which is a really important, mm-hmm. economically important forage crop in Europe. I mean, that's amazing. A third of the pollination yeah. services for a crop is huge. And, you know, and that's just one species of we, I no doubt that there are species in our own state that are equally, if not more important to various crops uh, that we grow here, but also they're so important to potentially to the pollination of some of our native plants and some of our endemic plants. So for example, uh, Northern Rockies received a really generous grant from uh, Wild Montana to look at the interaction between moth species in the prior mountains and this endemic mustard, the thick-leaved bladder pod, Physeria pachyphyla. And this is an endemic plant. It grows nowhere else other than the prior mountains and maybe a few little spots in the Bighorn Mountains. Nowhere else in the world is this little plant found. And they were interested in looking at it because it has recently been uh, proposed for listing under the Endangered Species Act. Um, There's a lot of uh, mine development uh, potential in the prior mountains, right where this plant grows. And we know so little about it. Uh, For other uh, Fisaria, uh, plants in the Fisaria uh, genus. They know that during the day, ground nesting bees are responsible for a lot of their pollination, but these flowers do not close up at night. They stay open. And so we were curious if maybe some of the uh, some of the moths and the priors are interacting with this plant um, in a potentially important way. So we did some pollen sampling up there through this grant. And basically my colleague, Matt, we would hand collect these moths off sheets that were set up near these blooming patches of the thick leaf ladder pod. And Matt would excise the proboscis. We'd sort of um, isolate these moths so that there wasn't any cross contamination of the pollen, isolate them in their own containers. And then Matt would swab the thorax to get, because that's often where the pollen will collect. Moths are so fuzzy. I think people forget that they're fantastic little uh, pollen um, collectors because their bodies are so fuzzy and many of them are actually crawl over the plant's reproductive parts rather than just, you know, alighting on top of over them or stilting over them. They really do sort of make contact with the with the flower's reproductive parts. So anyway, he would swab with a Q-tip the pollen off the thorax, and then he'd excise or cut the off the proboscis, which also potentially, if they were feeding or nectaring, um, would have pollen on their proboscis. And then we sent those samples up to Canada to the barcode of life data systems and they sequenced the DNA for us. And what we found through that, which was so cool, is there were five species of moths, or five moths from four, four different species that had Visaria pachyphyla pollen on, on them. And that's very exciting and, and interesting. There needs We need to do more work on that, but what it suggests is that moths do interact with this plant. And to have four different species potentially interacting with this plant is, is so cool. So we need to figure out, you know, how important are they actively pollinating? Are they just sort of roosting or resting on top of this and then picking up pollen incidentally? We're not sure yet, but it definitely suggests that they're interacting in a way that is getting pollen on themselves. And that's very cool. So I think there's a lot more, there's so much more to learn when it comes to the role that moths play in the pollination uh, networks of, in our various uh, native habitats and landscapes. 
That's amazing. And it's uh, like from the way you describe it, it's almost like these moths, even across these different species, are just pulling the night shift for an absolutely pivotal process. So, you know, you can't you can't run a 24 hour business without having the guys that come in late and, you know, need the coffee run and stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, I love that so much. So um, other than that, which is amazing and going to be hard to t- hard to top. Um, are there any other really cool or exciting discoveries that you guys have stumbled upon? Yeah, no, there's, oh, there's so many. It's it's so much fun. Um, we particularly, I mean, there's, you know, I talked, I mentioned briefly all of the county records and state records, and those those are really important because what those, so uh, county or state record, what that means is that we found a species of moth in, say, Yellowstone County that had never been documented there before. And that has a lot of different implications, right? Like some of these might be moths that could be, could be uh, economically important in terms of they might be damaging certain crops or trees, or they're just, they show that the diversity of our habitat, the quality of the habitat in that county or at that sampling site is high or low. Or one of the really cool things we found, my colleague Matt, uh, not discovered, but he collected the species of macromoth. It's very cool. Copa blephron atronotum. It's like bright yellow. It almost looks like uh, the color of a banana or like a, somebody drew on the wings with a yellow crayon. They're so cool. And they are associated with uh, sandhills habitat. And Matt found uh, these in the hundreds when he collected them, but only at the Centennial Sand Hills um, hmm. in Beaverhead County, Montana, because that's the habitat with which they're associated and, and they're particularly associated with certain plants that grow on those sand hills. And so we haven't found that species anywhere else in Montana yet, only at the sand hills, but, but we found them, we found like 200 specimens. So that means that they're very locally common, but habitat restricted. And that's fantastic. We've been finding a lot of similar, or we've been finding similar cases of that throughout the state where we're finding species that have never been recorded before in the state, so a state record, but finding them specifically in a, in a specific type of habitat, so sand hills or uh, salt, salt seeps or tundra or high desert. So the Priors is another really interesting, unique um, habitat. The, the high desert of the, the South Priors foothills has been hugely productive in terms of new things. We've, we this spring found a new species, an entirely undescribed macromoth species, which is so huh. exciting. Um, and it's not the only one that we found, which is very cool. But the reason that we found it, it's not down to anything really you know, that uh, for of us that we did, except that we were in the right place at the right time in the right habitat. Um, and that's why we were able to find this thing. So it's a, it's related to, it's in a group um, genus of moths that are associated with active sands. And there's an area in the priors that has some active shifting sands. Um, and we also sampled early. We sampled in uh, May, at the end of May. Not many people are out mothing mm-hmm. in May in Montana. Mm-hmm. And that's something that needs to change because that's when we're finding these really cool and interesting new records. It's because we're sampling at times when people, I think most people 
and most sort of amateur mothers or, um, or, you know, other researchers might say, oh, there's nothing out. There's going to be nothing out, you know, in mm-hmm. southern Montana in May. It's probably still going to be snowing or something mm-hmm. like that, you know. <laughs> but man, that's when we're finding the really cool stuff. And so it's amazing to think that this species has been there for, you know, however many right. millions of years um, just doing its thing. And that humans, the only species really equipped to recognize its existence as a species that has not found it has not been able to even you know recognize it its place in this earth until now because we just happened to pick the right spot in the right time yeah um, that's crazy it just makes really very cool it just makes yeah, you think like how many new species could be out there if you were just out oh, there at a different everywhere. time a different yeah. day yes no exactly and they're and they're everywhere and izzy has been a part of this so izzy's been fantastic she is one of our um our best volunteer citizen scientists because she's willing to go with me. So one of the hard things about, I think, being a woman in the natural history field is that you have to go in in the in terms of field research, you often have to go out to these sort of far-flung places and spend the night as with your mothing, especially, right? You have to be there at night. Um, and I just think it's it, unfortunate. I don't feel safe going alone to a lot of these places. And Izzy has been my absolute buddy and companion. And um, I mean, she's a fantastic natural historian <laughs> in her own right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't have been able to, we wouldn't have been able to find some of these species if she hadn't come, right? Like, I don't know that I would have gone on that day at that, you know, particular, on that particular week if Izzy hadn't <laughs> been so down to come with me and so open to experiencing this kind of field work. And she's just been amazing. So, and <laughs> Izzy was also there when we found uh, a first U.S. record. So Protogygia alberta is a species that had not been recorded outside of a few spots, uh, badlandish type habitats in southern Alberta. And so we, Izzy was with um, me and our friend Gwen in June when we recorded that record in the U.S. for the very first time, which is just amazing and so cool. But again, We've, a lot of the very cool um, species we're finding are coming from these really unique habitats mm-hmm. like the Prior Mountain uh, High Desert, which is such an insanely awesome habitat. If you haven't had a chance to go out there, I highly recommend it. It feels like you're in Utah or, you know, northern yeah, Mexico or something. Yeah. And we it's the only bit of true red high desert that we have in the state. And we're just, it's just amazing the diversity and the ecological richness of that range, uh, which includes East Prior and Big Prior. So yeah, we we love it out there. That's been amazing. But that's a long way of getting to the idea that part of doing this work is part of what's so important. I'm sorry, you guys. I I get really worked up. (laughs) This is so good. Part of what is so important about doing this kind of diversity work is that it highlights it highlights these unique um, habitats that we're so lucky to have in Montana, like the high desert, right? So, I mean, the only reason that we would, that some of these species would be present, that we would find them is because they only occur in these certain types of habitats. So if you lose that habitat, then you will likely lose that species, right? The Copa Blephron atronotum, that moth, you know, if something happened to the, that sandhills habitat, the centennial sandhills, we would, you know, potentially lose that moth in Montana, mm-hmm. that species altogether. So that's a really, um, I think, important point uh, as well. So they're pollinators, they're 
fantastic representatives of unique habitat. Um, and then, of course, there's the idea that they're, well, not even the idea, there's the fact that they are important prey for birds and bats. Mm. And that's some of the work that Matt has been doing over at NPG Ranch. They've done some amazing work linking moths and certain, even getting down to certain species of moths as prey, very important prey items for uh, poor wills and nighthawks and certain types of owls and bats and things like that. So oh, cool! You know, for all those reasons, they are, moths are awesome and deserve to be studied. <laughs> They're just as important as bees. Mm-hmm. Everybody, loves, everybody loves the bees. Um, bees are really hot right now, but moths, uh, you know, <laughs> I think if, if more people drank, um, got on the five hour energy train, I think they would think that moths are super cool too because they could stay up. Uh, I think <laughs> and think there's our second corporate plug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, whoops. <laughs> I love it. I think after they listen to this podcast, they're all going to be stoked on moths. <laughs> it's my colleague that got me turned on to those, man. And wow. yeah, they work. They're mm-hmm. important, especially mm-hmm. when you're edging on 40 and you just can't stay up. Oh, yeah. I've been on a five-hour energy kick before, too. (laughs) Okay. I want to turn the mic over to to Izzy here for a second to ask her a little bit about her experience. First of all, how did did you get involved with Montana Mouth Project? I started doing um, the Master Naturalist program through the Montana Audubon Center in Billings. And I, before I moved out here, was a sea turtle research associate at the Conservancy of Southwest Florida. And I would also volunteer in their snake hunting department, which was also a night program research thing. So I was kind of like, oh, another night program. How awesome. I love staying up and seeing these species that no one sees, no one recognizes Mm -hmm. and sees the beauty of these things. So I randomly went on one of the nights where Marion was mothing out at the Audubon Mm -hmm. and I just got hooked. (laughs) (laughs) I saw the beauty and I was like, oh, I'm coming back. (laughs) That's so awesome. What what was it like going out for you that that very first night, the first time you experienced it, the first time you you saw these moths in real life? Um, Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, Marion, as I'm sure you'll learn from this podcast, is just so good at sharing her passion Mm -hmm. and getting other people to like follow that and love what she's talking about. And you just get so pulled in and compelled to want to learn more. Mm. And Marion is just so awesome. You know, I want to be her when I'm older. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Me too. (laughs) Izzy, you already are and are, my friends. We're all learning this together. So, and that's something I have to, I have to note for sure is that, you know, I, um, I graduated with a master's in entomology just in 2018. So I'm still very new to this work and, um, Izzy has been so fantastic. I mean, she really feels like a colleague. We're kind of learning all of this, the the field protocols and the challenges that you encounter when you're out in the field. We've (laughs) been sort of going through this together. So Mm -hmm. she feels like a war buddy to be in. (laughs) (laughs) Incredibly good natured about it. Mm -hmm. And it makes me so happy to um, be involved in field work with with another woman, especially, um, I mean, the sciences sort of, you know, generally in the past have really been a man's world that has changed most certainly in the last 20 years. Um, entomology, very much a, a man's game for a very long time. Um, and that is also changing slowly, but I think it's it's getting there. And to have 
someone like Izzy be so interested in, you know, I think in a field that generally is considered like a, I don't know, ew, gross, bugs, ugh, you know, that kind <laughs> of attitude. It just, it, it is a really special relationship to have with another woman who can say, who can see these animals the same way I do and really appreciates them, not just for their sort of inherent beauty and interest, but asks a lot of really good questions. Mm. So calling all women who are out there who like camping in beautiful places, <laughs> staying up at night, are interested in animals. Yes. We'd love yeah. to have you join the projects. Absolutely. Because we, like I said, it's so, um, often it's so uncomfortable to go out and spend the night alone as a woman, you know, in a, in a state like Montana. Yeah, of course. Um, it can be really, so I think what a great opportunity to get a bunch of women together and bond in that way. Really like, it's so funny. The LEP field in particular, I don't know why, but <laughs> uh, Lepidopterists, they are often amateurs. So they, you know, they do it as a hobby and they tend to be old white guys. And oh, yeah. yeah, it's we can change that. I wish yeah. there were more women who really love to moth in Montana and you know, I think it's what a cool opportunity to like get a bunch of your friends together, gal pals and go go map. And basically totally. so both of my citizen scientist groups, um, we have one that's based out of Zoo Montana, which is fantastic, and we have one based out of the Audubon Center, as Izzy said. They are both ninety what five percent women. <laughs> oh, women? Yeah, that's great. One, we have one guy. So it is changing. <laughs> groups. <laughs> you know, it's, um, and then the, I think for the Audubon Center, our one male participant uh, doesn't really come anymore. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. And now it's all women. I mean, it's just wild. Mm. Like, why? I don't know. I yeah. think that's true of the natural hit the you know field of natural history right now generally yeah. that seems to be the pattern but it's too bad it okay mm-hmm. so Izzy to speak to speak to people out there who might be interested like what keeps you coming back like for Marion it's it's her job but for you and obviously she loves it too <laughs> but um as a volunteer you know what, what keeps you coming back night after night like staying out in the cold nights driving really far on Friday nights to go out and camp at these places like what's drawing you back it's it's kind of hard to define exactly what it is. I think it's a lot of the components coming together. It's Marion's passion and learning these things with her. It's the beauty of the moths. And additionally, the community of the other people that we meet. There are so many other mm-hmm. volunteers at the Audubon Center. I got the opportunity to moth with them out of the zoo too and meet some of the keepers there, which is a great experience for me as a keeper here at the sanctuary. Yeah, it's just a learning experience where you're, you get to meet other women, mm-hmm. as we yeah. mostly yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. so cool. Potential to discover yeah. new species now. And oh, also, like, nice. just some of the, like, fun, crazy experiences, too. We One of our trips to the Priors was just overall insane. We had so much happen. We got caught in rainstorms mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. And then one time when we were at the Audubon Center, we had the experience of some raccoons that were messing with us <laughs> and it's just always fun yeah that's a cool thing about field research oh i love that that's awesome okay so i came across a quote on your website and maybe both of you can answer this and it really it just like oh it, it hit a chord for me because i was like this seems right of what i've started to learn about moss and it said the moss of montana are as compelling as any other of the macro mammals 
for which this state is famous. And I was like, whoa, because that's that's what Montana is known for is our our charismatic megafauna that we have in Yellowstone. But the more I've been learning about moss, I'm like, yeah, it seems seems comparable. What but what does that exactly mean to you all? Is is that speaking to like the diversity of moss or um how they relate to the ecosystem in our <laughs> yeah or, or, or for what perspective were you meaning that? Sure. Um yeah I, I think so for me part of the reason that I, I'm so interested in, in invertebrates and insects like moths and butterflies is the fact that they just in terms of accessibility they're the most accessible form of wildlife really that we have right mm-hmm. maybe other than arachnids uh, who doesn't love to go see you know wolves in yellowstone or um right, you know, to watch a group of elk you know crossing a meadow it's or mountainside is really spectacular but it's very it's not something that you would see every day right you have to make sort of a special trip you can't hold an adult gray wolf in your hand really um you this is but those are things you can do you can't you can't smell the you know secretions i guess you could smell the secretions of a gray wolf or (laughs) a bison Mm. but i would say that being able to just pick up like a darkling beetle and have it spray Mm. its defensive chemicals in your face is such a fantastic experience and it is so and particularly with moths to be able to just have this wild animal essentially a wild animal land on your sleeve when you're at a moth sheet at night and just hang out with you. You know, yes, there's a lot of anthropomorphizing going on in that interaction, but there's also, from a purely scientific perspective, being able to have a research specimen uh, that close to you, being able to watch how it flies, how it lands, how it uh, moves its body once it comes to the sheet and often, you know, big silk moths and, and uh, sphinx moths to avoid bats. They won't just sort of float in and land gently on the sheet. They'll kind of come in at a distance and then drop and then like somersault on the ground, <laughs> which I believe is sort of a bat avoidance mechanism. Mm. Um, getting to firsthand view those behaviors, you know, versus watching a wolf, um, you know, take down a, a young elk through a telescope. It's just, there's something so different and amazing about that to me. I, I just, it's almost baffling why more people aren't fascinated yeah. by insects because you can see all of their life histories. You know the way they have. You can uh, watch them have sex. You can see <laughs> how they uh, um, hunt. You can see mm-hmm. how they follow their food or don't follow their food. How they you know protect themselves. Yeah. How they clean their eyeballs. How they keep themselves clean. All of these things that you sort of like your daily routine. You can see that up close and personal in the palm of your hand in a lot of cases with these animals. You know, in terms of our megafauna, it's they all belong to one group, really, right? I mean, they're almost all mammals or maybe some of them are, are birds. But invertebrates, you know, including, so that includes obviously moths and butterflies, are so different. I mean, you've got just an endless supply of interesting creatures when you're dealing with um, insects and arachnids and their kin. So for me, that's kind of what I meant okay. uh, when we wrote that. I love that. Because I, I think of kids who, like, their favorite animal might be a gray wolf, but they might even never get to see one in their lifetime, like, especially in the wild. But with moths, they could they could see one every day. They could start studying it from when they're little and get really excited about being involved with them and, and helping them out, too. That's oh, great. totally. Yes. And, yeah. like, I mean, you know, and the thing is, it's, oh, who, it's incredible to watch a gray wolf, you know, attack 
Mm-hmm. Um, attack food and how they pack up and all that stuff. But all those behaviors that these sort of large charismatic mammals have made famous, those happen in endless variation in insects mm-hmm. and other invertebrates. I mean, they're the way, the different ways that they, you know, hunt and eat and sleep and all of that stuff and, mm. and move around the landscape. You know, science, the best science fiction's got nothing on that stuff. I mean, for example, you've got <laughs> mantispids are these wild looking Dr. Seussian insects that mimic, a lot of them will mimic uh, the coloration of paper wasps, which can sting, but these little creatures don't sting. So they're, they're using that, you know, defense mechanism for their benefit that bees and wasps have and saying, okay, I'm going to color myself like you. Now my prey will think that I'm, or potential predators will think that I'm dangerous, but I'm not. I'm just super flipping cute because they are like a mix of a lacewing and a praying mantis and um, like a, just a, oh, they're so sweet. So they um, have uh, bulging eyes and this sort of triangular head like a praying mantis. They've got these like, also these spiny mantid-like raptorial front arms. And then their wings are beautifully uh, lacy, sort of like a lacewing or a damselfly or an antlion. And they're actually in the same family that antlions are in. And they're so funny. They'll just, they, they have these funny little antennae that like, wiggle back and forth when they walk <laughs> and they kind of like flutter they kind of like flutter their wings out a little bit as they're walking around and they're just they're hilarious and I think most people would walk right by them because they would think that they're a paper wasp and I mean that's what they want you to think which is mm-hmm. so awesome what a great um, defensive strategy so all these things I mean there's so many little things like that in the invertebrate world that are they're just so fun to learn and fascinating if you spend even just like 10 minutes sitting in front of a plant you know you'll start to see this stuff and you know for izzy like when we are out mothing together we are kind of especially when you're in a you know you're in a group of people who are really interested in why things are the way they are and coming up with ideas but you know we'll get things to the sheet moss to the sheet where we're like why do you okay so the pattern is like this the hind wings look like this though you know why would that be what is possibly are they um, trying to camouflage themselves against a host plant are they trying to look like bark where maybe they rest they roost uh, during the day they don't have any aposematic coloration any warning coloration so how do they protect themselves from predators they must um, you know they must rest in a certain area then during the day that's different all these kind of things it's so fun like we're able to get curious and ask questions and they're always different because we always get different stuff. But then we do start to like teach each other and, and learn the different families, um, which is a uh, quite the uh, effort. I mean, there's so many of them <laughs> but... and many of them look very similar, but it's really fun to be able, if you love pattern recognition, man, will you love to math. So beginning to learn, starting with, uh, you know, certain common families and then getting into some of the more uncommon families based on wing pattern and and shape and size and when they're active. And it's so much fun. We do that together as a team. And yeah, it's just a really good time. That's what being a scientist is all about. We have just about three questions left. Okay, I have one that I'm just really curious about. Eden's got a burning question that stemmed from a conversation um, about like preparing for this podcast. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) We're just curious. Where do moths go in the wintertime? What are they, what are they doing this time of year? There's different strategies for sure. So um, I don't, I learned that too. I actually like, I still am not 
totally sold on where do some of these mods go like during the day? Yeah, even during the day. Where are they? Why don't I just like stumble across a Sphinx mod? You know, some of these Sphinx mods like out in the woods when I'm hiking. Like, where yeah, exactly. Yes, I um, have been wondering this also for some of these groups. I think we, we just don't really know much yet what they do, um, but there's lots of different strategies that mods have in terms of what they do in the wintertime. So some will overwinter as adults and they'll hide like under leaves and bark or in the sort of like in the uh, leaf litter layer. And then others will overwinter as pupae in the ground. So they're in their resting phase or dormant phase um, in the soil. And then there may be some that uh, overwinter as larvae. Uh, and you know, in the caterpillar stage, they might overwinter as an egg um, and then hatch in the spring. So I think there's there's lots of different strategies. Um, the adults, for, for species where the adults mate and then lay their eggs, then they will usually, you know, they'll often die and then the eggs overwinter and they'll hatch as larvae in the spring. The larvae will eat, go through various instars, and then they'll go into their pupil phase where they're metamorphosing into an adult and then they'll come out like early summer or something like that. But yes, there are different strategies. Perfect, all right. So that can actually tie in right to our next our next question. So keeping that in mind, are moths affected by climate change? There's, I think, a growing body of evidence to suggest that they probably are just like other organisms from mammals all the way down to tiny little invertebrates. Moths, there's a lot of ways that they might be affected. Like other invertebrates, their ranges seem to be shifting. We are, through this project, that's one of the, the cool things that we've uh, been able to document Right now, it's just maybe more anecdotally until we really dig into our results. But we're seeing species in Montana that we didn't assume would be here. Um, There are species that are more associated with sort of the south west or the uh, central plains that we're seeing in Montana that we're wondering, okay, is this just a, a sampling bias? We, we simply just haven't sampled for this species before in Montana in this place, and that's why we're seeing it here? Or is this a, an example of a range extension where the species previously wasn't able to survive our winters, and so it only could come so far north, and now uh, our winters are so mild that they're able to survive and their range is moving northward. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the case. That seems to be the case for things like certain tick species and, you know, and, and other invertebrates. So in that way, yes, they're absolutely, potentially there's some rain shifts. But I think for moths, uh, which are herbivorous, right, for the, almost exclusively, it will be how they'll be affected will really have to do with the, their access to their host plants. Unlike other insects or invertebrates, moths and butterflies are really tied to specific groups of plants, often specific species of plants. And if those, if something happens to those species, then they will be affected pretty, pretty severely. So they're very much tied to habitat and, and their host plants. So if, if plants aren't able to survive, if their host plant isn't able to survive um, really hot, dry summers, then they will probably go as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's something we're able to sort of through this project, there, there really was no baseline in terms of what species are in Montana, where these species are um, before this project. So that's huge, right? We, we don't have a lot to compare what we're finding with because there simply wasn't this kind of work has not been done in our state before. So that's that's one of the really important aspects of this work is that it's providing a baseline for for researchers in the future um, to look at how these species dynamics are changing. Uh, 
thanks to climate change. Um, or if they're changing at all, some of them might be incredibly stable. And why are they stable? Things like that. So clearly we're starting to see all of these various like interactive chains and stuff like that. Is there anything else that could be impacting populations or is it still just a question of we don't know? We haven't been here yet. Yeah, I mean, and it's like you guys have probably, you know, and, and your listeners have probably heard this before. But yes, there's there's certainly other things that affect um, these animals. So light pollution is one. Uh, there are, as we talked about, there's um, quite a few groups of moths that are day flyers, and they're really only active during the day. Um, a lot of flower moths, but for night active moths, being able to operate in darkness is is really important. Um, a lot of ancillary and extraneous light really messes up their navigation, their ability to move through their environment because they have evolved to to move in, in dark. And it allows them to be more easily predated upon by predators. And yeah, I think light pollution is really a, is really a big one. And you see the impacts, you can see them uh, just being an uh, being a recreational mother, right? So when you have when you set up a sheet in a fairly well lit area at night, you're and you set up another sheet or a uh, trap nearby, but in a much darker spot, you'll see a difference in what you get in terms of abundance. And yeah, that's definitely um, an issue. And then, uh, of course, pesticides and herbicides affect moths the same way they affect honeybees and, and bumblebees and other invertebrates. Again, they have such an intimate plant connection with their host plants that, you know, that's another concern. Um, if you're using herbicides on plants and you've got moths whose caterpillars might be might be munching on some of those plants, then yeah, they'll die. And yeah, that's just a, that's a huge issue, I think. And we're not even necessarily talking about the home gardener using, you know, herbicides and pesticides. We're kind of more, I mean, I think the more important issue are statewide sprays, which say for grasshoppers and things, um, you know, I think sometimes people think that these grasshopper sprays are just impacting grasshoppers. No, they're impacting anything with a chitinous um, exoskeleton, and that includes leps, moths, and butterflies, and their and their young. So, yeah, there's there's definitely some some issues. You know, habitat loss yeah. like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Humans are notoriously bad at thinking in the long term, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's so difficult for us as a species to think past our own lifespan. And um, that's really, I feel like the cause, the root cause of a lot of our issues is we just can't think past our own lives and what it will mean for for the organisms that will. Mm -hmm. Bigger picture stuff. Yeah, long past us and our species, but. So if we were to kind of recap everything that we've been discussing and talk and like people are like, all right, I am amped about moths. I want to do this. Um, Like, give me my boots and my five hour energy shots. How can they (laughs) actively get involved with organizations like yours, various community science projects and volunteer opportunities? Tell us where to go with all this newfound moth mania. Yes, um, I would. So if you are interested in participating in our project, we have an iNaturalist page, the Montana Moth Project iNaturalist page, where you can submit observations. You can go to our website, uh, montanamothproject.org, and uh, you can shoot us an email. There's an email address there and let us know where you are and what you're interested in doing. We love to have people uh, take pictures of interesting moths that they see um, and send them to us or post them to the iNaturalist page. One thing that we 
always let people know is that it's with insect diversity surveys. So, and with our particular project, something won't count as a state record or a county record unless there's a vouchered specimen to accompany it. So if it's just a photo, that's awesome because it's a record that that species was there. But just uh, know that, so what we would probably do is be like, whoa, that's a species that we haven't recorded yet in Montana. Can we come and sample, you know, near you or where you found this and, you know, come out with us and do it with us. And and then we can have a vouchered specimen to go along with that. But mothing as just a, you know, as just sort of a, a everyday recreational activity is super easy. It's not expensive. You don't need like a bunch of fancy equipment. On our website, montanamothproject.org, we've got a page where you it gives you some tips on how to create your own moth uh, trap and your own moth setup on your porch and you know remember that for this project we our traps are lethal so but you don't have to do that you can do live what's called live trapping or live luring where you just have a um a black light over a bucket full of egg carton uh empty egg carton containers and a funnel of some kind um there's lots of cheap really fun creative ways to do this you can use like um an old planter pot and you know those pet cones those like plastic Mm -hmm. white pet cones you can use that as your funnel and then just hang a black light over the top and then in the morning you can look through the eight cartons and all these cool moths will be in there and you know they'll fly off um or you can use like a collapsible mesh hamper and put that over a light that you've screwed into like your porch light or something and in, in the morning or if you stay up you know late in montana most of most moths don't start flying until an hour or so after true dark. And and as we know in our high latitude, right, that that changes uh, throughout the season. So in midsummer, it probably doesn't get, I don't know, Izzy, it, was, it wasn't really getting true dark until like 1030, maybe? Yeah, pretty much. So, you know, you do maybe, you have to stay, if you really want to see like a <laughs> lot of, you know, different moths, you kind of have to stay up fairly late. But stuff will start flying around 930, 10 o'clock. You'll get stuff. And that's mm-hmm. that's so fun. And it's if you're just starting, that's a great way to begin because you're not going to be like so overwhelmed with stuff. Um, you know that you're a true mother. I mean, you'll like, we consider it like you have been christened. <laughs> if you stay up late enough to mid summer to get moths hitting you in the face yeah. and like going down your shirt, getting in your sleeves, <laughs> maybe eating a micro moth or two, then you are, you are, you've made it, man. You're like a hardcore moth. You're in and the you club. You're in the club. And it's the best feeling in the world is getting pelted by a bunch of furry little bodies. Um, oh. <laughs> it's, so oh. it's, like, it's great. You're just like, oh, I love this. But yeah, there's lots of uh, resources out there for people who are interested in mods. There's some great field guides you can find on Amazon. There's uh, a series of field guides, field guides to mods through Peterson, the Peterson Field Guide um, series. Uh, David Beadle and Seabrook uh, Leckie have wrote those, and they're wonderful. Unfortunately, so there's one by Dr. Paul Opler that's beautiful and big guide to the western moths uh or the moths of western north america but it's not a field guide because it weighs like a pound and a half (laughs) and i have carried that everywhere with me it's great um but it is definitely not like a super easy field guide um but then there's lots of online resources um the moth photographers group has a fantastic and site where they are tracking and that's the one that we collaborate with so all of our records are shown on maps on moth photographers group and they have great 
photographic plates um, that would will help you ID you the moss that you find. Um, Pacific Northwest Moths is another great one. And then on Facebook, there's a fantastic group that's a a worldwide group called um, Mods and Moth Watching. And I believe that it is hosted, so it's the key, the primary host of that site um, is Carl Barentine and also Ken Childs, who are both world experts um, on the moths of their area. I think Ken, I wanna say Ken's based out of the Midwest, Tennessee or Kentucky maybe. And then Carl is based out of Washington State. And they are just amazing. They um, but people post from all over the world. Uh, they'll post pictures of moths that they find asking for identifications. You can ask for IDs from this website, um, from that Facebook page. Just post a photo and say, hey, I need some help IDing this moth I, I found last night. And Carl is amazing. He single-handedly, I would say, has got, has increase the popularity of mothing as a recreational activity in our country. He's, he's funny. He has amazing tips and advice. He's got hilarious videos that show all his different, like low key, inexpensive setups for mothing. He's always drinking while he's mothing. He mods high class. So it's like, it's not, you know, like a Keystone or Natty Light or something. It's like a glass of very nice red wine, mm-hmm. um, a cocktail. Mm-hmm. But I just love it because he, he really makes it fun and engaging and accessible. So yeah, those are some ways to get in. And then National Moth Week, of course. So, and that's a great one. Happens in, I think when it's like the third week of July every year. The last week of July. So this year last it's gonna be the 20, the week of the 22nd. Um, yes. And we were actually planning to include some information on that. So if you wanted to get more, you would just check out the Friends of the East Brunswick Environmental Commission, Friends of EBEC. Um, and it looks like they are based out of New Jersey. So again, we're going to put a link in there for those who want to find out more. That'd be great. And then if people are interested in um, starting their own uh, citizen science group in their county and helping out with the moth project in that way, please get in touch with us. Uh, I believe you guys can provide our contact information, um, but we would love to help you help us basically. And if you're in Yellowstone County, absolutely hook up with our Montana Audubon Center citizen science moth mothing crew we call them our moth crew um <laughs> we have our own our own hand signs and everything uh, Ooh, so cool we're always looking for new uh people and and then we you know we even have people who just do it as as individuals so we i'll provide them the you know basic training and some of the materials and then you know they go to their grandma's cabin in the woods and and they put up a light you know, for a night while they're up there and then they'll collect the specimens and get them, get them to me so we can um, include them in our results and our research. And that's really wonderful because they will be, you will be forever noted as the collector. Um, you'll, your name will be the one that's on the label. And, you know, it's a really great way to, to sort of be invested long-term in a, in a project. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. We, we will definitely link, um, all these resources in the show notes so people can check back to those to follow any of those references that you just shared with us today. So thank you so much for letting everybody know about moths. Yes. <laughs> I feel like how I felt after the first time I went mothing, uh, rejuvenated and motivated. So hopefully everyone else feels that way too. 
That's great. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate the opportunity to share our project and our work. We're very passionate about this and, and very proud of the work we've done. And yeah, we yeah. just want people to love Mons as much as we do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> of course. We love, we love sharing this. It's our pleasure. Thank you both. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank yes. you, Izzy. Thank you, Marianne. Yes, and thank you for your time. We know how busy you are. Yes. So it really is a, like meaningful to us that you took the time for yeah. us. Oh, thank you guys. I'm so happy to do this. You know that. Oh my gosh. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much. So nice to see you again. You too. Yeah. Did this episode make you excited about moss as well? Did it fill your head with questions? Well, let us know by emailing podcast at yellowstonewildlife.org. We may get to ask your question when we bring on the executive director of the Northern Rockies Research and Educational Services in our next episode. We appreciate any and all of your feedback. The Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is a production of the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana. Our hosts today were Eden Wandra and Jess Smallwood. Our theme music was written and performed by local musician Justin Satterfield and recorded by Sean Keeney. For all the incredible show notes, links, and resources that Marion shared with us today, please visit www.yellowstoneecosystem.com. And if you would like to learn more about the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary or find ways to help support them, please visit yellowstonewildlifesanctuary.org. We hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem.